You are listening to Australia's tax news podcast, Tax Talks, the podcast for Australian tax professionals. Welcome to episode 89 of Tax Talks. This is Heidi Robson. And thank you to Klaus for sponsoring this episode. A trust is a fiduciary relationship between trustees and beneficiaries about trust property. And this relationship is defined by rights and duties, or to be more precise, the duties of trustees. Paul McEnross of Cleary Hall in Brisbane kindly agreed to walk you through these duties of trustees. Here's Paul. So when we look at the, I guess, rights of beneficiaries, the converse of the rights of beneficiaries is the duties of the trustee. So the right of discretionary beneficiaries is often called the right to be considered. And what that should be is more precise is about is saying the beneficiary has a right to ensure that the trustee is adhering to the terms of the trust. I mean, perhaps more generally, adhering to the trustee's duties to that particular beneficiary. So in the context of trustee's duties, when we look at those, there's a number that we're going to talk about today and we don't propose to cover all trustee's duties, but these are kind of more of the common ones. The first one is really adhering to the terms of the trust. So this is the most important duty of all trustees is to, in most circumstances, there'll be a trustee and it is their duty to adhere to the terms of that trust. You can modify most of the other rules or duties that we're going to talk about by specific clauses in the trustee, but this one can't be modified. The, the trustee has to follow the terms of the trust. So you can change the terms of the trust, but you can't change the trustee's duty to follow the terms of the trust. Correct. What I was getting at is one of the duties that we're going to talk about is the duty to not delegate your responsibility. Now, the trustee might say that a trustee can delegate their responsibility to do a particular job. So your trustee has negated that duty to not delegate. So the trustee will allow the trustee to be excused from certain jobs, but you can't be excused from adhering to the terms of the trust, which, which makes sense. You have to follow what the deed says. Yes. So the trustee can't say, you don't need to follow me. Correct. That's right. So there are some qualifications. Obviously, if a beneficiary gets a court order ordering the trustee to perform a certain action, well, that may be against the terms of the trust, for example, but if a court orders it, then we have to follow it. The other is the what's called the rule in Saunders and Vaudier. What that says is that it's an old estate claim or case, and it's about saying that if there are adult beneficiaries who are of sound mind and they're absolutely entitled to the assets as against the trustee, but the trustee is required to not pass those assets on. Often people will say, I don't want my kids to get my assets until they're 35. Well, the rule in Saunders and Vaudier says that if they're absolutely entitled to the asset, they're of adult legal age and they're of sound mind, then they can call upon, unanimously, call upon the trustee to go against the terms of that trust and pass the asset to them. So there are some qualifications, but this really is a paramount duty to adhere to the terms of the trust. 
Holmes versus Wojtyla. That's yep. the landmark case. Yes. And, and can, do you know what happened there? No, so I, this, <laughs> I think essentially it was that scenario which I sort of wrapped it up to. saying, I die, I give my assets to my kids, but they're not to get it till they're 25. So if they're 18 and that's the only restriction on that asset is that I'm supposed to be 25 when I get it, but if I'm of sound mind when I get to 18, I can force the trustee to give me the asset. Yeah, you are the uh, president. Yeah, so I think it's just saying, well, you're absolutely entitled to it, but there's just this little qualification saying you're, you're not. not getting it for ten years or something. Well, you're an adult. I think that's the policy: is you're an adult, you're sound mind, you can have it. You know, they can't stop you. Um, so that's kind of yeah, the policy behind it. So the beneficiaries can demand payout of the capital. In some fairly strict cases, this will not apply to a discretionary trust. It will only apply to some fixed trusts where the only thing stopping it, for example, is that age factor. It kind of doesn't have terribly broad application. It's more about those circumstances, particularly in a will setting, where you might say, I give the assets to my legal personal representative to hold on trust until my son gets to the age of 25, which, at which time he, he, the asset goes to my son. I see. And the son might be able to pierce through that veil. Pierce through the 25-year age bracket and say, well, I'm 18, I want that asset now. And at that time, the trustee can, and most times it will be after a court order, because oftentimes the trustee may say, but these are the rules of the trust. I don't want to go outside the rules. So oftentimes they will ask a court to say, is this okay? And the court can order in that way and say, well, yes, it is okay because that's the only restriction and the rule in Saunders and Vaudier will allow the asset to pass mm. at an earlier stage. But is it okay and allowed to pass is different to you must pass? Correct. So the, so the beneficiary in a fixed trust can actually demand that the asset passes? Yeah, so they can. Um, but again, what we're talking about here is really the context of where a trustee is in a way going to breach their obligation to adhere to the terms of the trust. Rarely would a trustee do that without some sort of court authority, but it is possible they can be given advice and say, well, yes, it's outside the terms of the trust, but I accept that they are entitled and the asset should go. But that would be rare, I would have thought. Normally they would go to court and say, can you give a declaration that it's acceptable to pass this asset because the only restriction is that they have to get to 25, for example. Can we do away with that particular part of, of the trust? Another duty is to act impartially between beneficiaries. Now, this has its history based in principally where there might be a life tenant to a particular trust asset and then a remainderman, as they're called. So a life tenant might have access to all of the income of an asset during their life, but the remainderman has the capital at the, at the end of the life of the life tenant. So in those circumstances, there is a duty to act impartially between those two different classes of beneficiaries. 
Now, the, the controversies in these areas will come as to allocation of expenses, income or capital receipts, but it really is often about making sure, one, that they do the first duty, adhering to the terms of the trust, making sure that there's a sound basis for their decisions where it works in those and circumstances. I can, I can imagine it's a minefield because the life tenant, for example, will not be interested in any repair and maintenance of the of the property, yep. whereas remainderment yep. will want to have the property yeah, well maintained. That's right. So I can imagine that's a recipe for war. <laughs> And I guess that they are where those those aspects come in is to say, and it doesn't have to be in a property setting. We talk about a case later today where we've invested more in, in shares that are designed towards capital growth versus income in the short term. So that's another scenario where the life tenant is saying, well, I want the asset to be directed towards income producing, but I don't care about capital growth. So, But it's about that that duty to act impartially. Now, that duty won't apply to most clients because most clients have a discretionary trust. It, it is kind of a, a niche thing. And discretionary trusts, by their nature, they have a wide range of beneficiaries and a trustee doesn't have to act completely impartially in the same way that they do for those successive interests. Yes, of course. A, a trustee can't act impartially because if, if they did, they would have to give everybody exactly the same that, amount that, of That's income. right. And there's an English case called Ed, Edge's case which says exactly that, that well, what the trustee has to do is they have to follow the terms of the trust, which generally gives them the discretion to determine who they distribute income or capital to. They should consider what the relevant matters are and then disregard irrelevant matters. But generally the discretion is left with the trustee. So, And in most family trust scenarios, well, the trustee who might be mum and dad distribute to mum and dad. And there's a long list of beneficiaries who never, who, never, who never receive anything. So, look, that's going to happen all the time. It doesn't mean that a beneficiary can say, oh, you didn't act impartially between all of us, we, we should have got access to that. It, it doesn't mean that. It just means that they have to make a decision each year, well, who are we going to do? And in a discretionary trust setting, it's not totally meaningless, but really it's more a reflection of the first duty to these are the terms of the trust and we're going to adhere to them. When you spoke about the life tenant and the remainderment before, that was with respect to a fixed trust. That scenario will occur more in a will setting where you might give a life tenancy to a property, for example, to your spouse, but then you leave the capital asset to a child. And your spouse may, you may make your will when you're 40 and your spouse doesn't die until she's 80. So that's where that conflict might come about is that intervening period where that, the asset is held on trust by someone and it's that duty to say, well, I'm, uh, like you said, I'm, I'm not going to do any maintenance because it's all about giving the life tenant access, but I don't really care about the capital side of it. So not necessarily a fixed trust, but more it happens in that scenario of a testamentary trust aspect. The next duty I want to talk about is a duty not to fetter the trustee's discretion. Now, whenever I say that to clients, they usually glaze over and, 
eyes boggle and, and it happened to me as well. But really what it's about saying is that the trustee won't do something now that stops the trustee from exercising a discretion at some later point. So the, the discretions given to a trustee are given to the trustee for a reason so that they can adhere to whatever decisions they want to make at the time. So if we enter into agreement, say, for example, that in five years' time we're going to make a, an income distribution to a particular person, well, that is binding the trustee now to do a particular action that at that time they have discretion to do. So in those circumstances, the court may intervene to say, well, that is a fetter on the discretion and there's an argument there that it can be unwound. Now, there's cases on either side that have said, well, it, the contract is void, albeit that the trustee may be sued for damages, but the other side is that, well, it should be upheld. So there's, there's some conflicting aspects there. The next duty is the duty to account. What it also involves is a provision of information. Now, this will be particularly relevant in a fixed trust setting or even a bare trust setting where, uh, and the difference between the two is really a bare trust is probably the simplest form of trust. And it's where I hold an asset for you. And that's really the only rules between it is that I will transfer the asset to you when you tell me to. There's no other, there's no real discretions built in. It's just that simple trust. So I will hold an asset for you. When you tell me, I will transfer it to you. So in those scenarios, you have a proprietary interest in the property and therefore I have a duty to account to you for that property. Their trust in LRBA. So LRBA is limited recourse borrowing oh, arrangement, yes. okay. but their trusts come into play in a limited recourse borrowing arrangement. So what a limited recourse borrowing arrangement is about is a super fund wants to buy something. Oftentimes it'll be property, but they need to borrow money to do so. And the, the rules in the Superannuation Act say that there needs to be a trustee who holds that asset on a bare trust, so to speak, whereby the asset, once it's paid out, will pass back to the super fund. So it's often used in a, in a setting of superannuation funds wanting to borrow, albeit that the bear trusts that I talked about that have very simple rules, a super fund of bear trust will have a lot more rules, but the theory behind them is the same. The trustee of the bear trust will hold the asset, will advance the money to, to buy it, once the asset is paid off, then the super fund has a right to call for that asset to be transferred back. Mm. So, so you also see a lot of bear trusts that have nothing to do with an LRBA? No. My experience is that bear trusts are generally in an LRBA situation. There are some other bear trusts, but they're, but they're less common. It, it may be that someone wants to buy property, but they don't want to buy it in their name, so they'll do it in a bear trust scenario, but they're less common. And it's dangerous because you, you you run the risk of incurring stamp duty again. Yeah, so it needs to be structured right. structured well, particularly in, in New South Wales. You can do it in a nominee arrangement, but the way the rules are, you need to make sure your agreements are in place before you do 
the actual transaction or else you, you, you run that risk of some problem. That's right. When you buy a property and you buy it in the name of a trustee who doesn't exist yet, then you can incur stamp duty again. Yeah, so that, that can be a problem as well. If the trust comes into existence after the contract is entered into, well, the stamp duty office may take the view that well, what you've done is you've bought it in the name of the person on the contract but then you've declared a trust over that asset or you've transferred the asset to a trust and, and charged you with stamp duty again. So you need to make sure that your trust is established before you enter into the contract. Now, there's ways to um, go about rescinding contracts and, and fixing that problem if, if it happens, but it's something that great care should be taken to, to make sure that it's done properly. And is it a particular issue in New South Wales and not so much an issue in Queensland or is it an issue all over uh, Australia? That issue is the same everywhere, that if you don't have your trust established at the time you enter the contract, well, that issue is across Australia. Probably the issue I was talking about is where you entering into the contract as a nominee more than as a trustee. In the scenario of a bare trustee, for example, you might be able to change the trustee without any duty, but transferring the asset back to the real owner is going to require some evidence that, that the real owner was the real owner at the time the property was purchased, just to avoid any questions about whether double duty should be imposed. next duty is whether there's a duty on the trustee to provide information to beneficiaries. So when we're talking about this particular duty, oftentimes there will be beneficiaries of a trust who might be engaged in some sort of dispute with the trustee, maybe their family members, business partners, those sorts of things, and they will want to know, well, what right do I have to gain access to information about the trust? And oftentimes it's about they want access to financial material. That's, that's generally what they want in these scenarios. And in a true discretionary trust, a beneficiary doesn't have a right to gain access to that material. Oh, really? Uh, no, because they don't have any proprietary interest in the trust. Yeah. You get what you get and you don't get upset. That's right. And I think that's an area where we can get a little bombarded by lawyers' letters demanding access to the financials for a particular beneficiary who may be engaged in some legal cause against the trustee and they'll, the lawyers' letters will come and it will be threatening and it will be demanding things and we feel like, oh, maybe we're obliged to give this discretionary beneficiary this information. I mean, the answer is, well, we're not. If it's a purely discretionary trust, then we're not obliged to give out that information. Now, the court may have an inherent jurisdiction to gain access to that material because, again, if a court orders it, then we do what the court says. But what the court will be looking at is really about balancing this against the first duty to adhere to the terms of the trust. So when the court is looking at it saying, well, this financial material, does that disclose any breach of that first duty? And if it doesn't, it may be that it goes nowhere. But I guess if the financial material shows that they're breaching that first duty to adhere to the terms of the trust, then that may become relevant in, in whatever that action might be. But I think the short answer is because you don't have that proprietary interest in the trust, 
doesn't give you a right to gain access to information about the trust. The next duty is the duty not to delegate. Now, we spoke about this earlier where this is one of those duties a trustee may be excused from, and most modern trustees have a clause and should have a clause that says a trustee can delegate their duty to another person. Um, and oftentimes you'd be thinking about duty of investments and those sorts of things. Well, the trustee may do the investing, I suppose, but most modern trustees allow that delegation to another party. So this is where this duty can be disregarded by the terms of the trust. The next duty is the duty of the trustee not to profit from their position. One of the main cases in this area, and it's fun to talk about just because it's a, a family of notoriety, is the Murdoch case. And in that case, Rupert Murdoch's father, Sir Keith Murdoch, set up a number of trusts uh, in which his son Rupert Murdoch was the trustee. This had that element of life tenant to income versus the remainder to capital. So Rupert's mother, Dame Elizabeth, was a life tenant to the income of these particular trusts. And Rupert was the remainderman in relation to the capital once Dame Elizabeth passed away. So Rupert, as trustee of these trusts, invested in News Group and at the time he was the chief executive officer as well. So at that time, the shares that were purchased in News Group favoured capital growth rather than investment income. Notwithstanding that the amount of dividend income was comparable to other investments on the market at the time, because it did favour that capital growth, which favoured Rupert as the remainderman, Dame Elizabeth sued and a settlement was reached in relation to that lawsuit where Dame Elizabeth was paid an account of profits of $85 million for what was said to be Rupert's gain by breaching his duty not to profit. Really how we get to this case is the Commission of Taxation sought to dispute the accounting treatment of that settlement amount as to whether it should be a deduction for income or whether it was a capital expense. But And what was the answer? That it was a capital expense for an account of profits and it wasn't, I guess, an income deduction. They're obviously claiming an income deduction, but it was an account of profits that he made rather than, I guess, another type of expense that could be on income account. I think we'll never know what the true reasoning behind the lawsuit was, but it gives a, I guess... But treating a, it as capital favoured the mother because it meant she had a capital gain and hence could access capital gain concessions. It harmed him because it meant it was only a capital loss, that, not an income loss. Yeah, that's right. He obviously was trying to write it off on his expenses as an income or an income expense, so therefore deduct it from his income revenue. But ultimately the court said, no, it's, it's a capital, so you can only deduct, take it off other capital gains. Although at the time, it probably was pre-capital gains. So there's a number of other duties which we, we won't go into today, but there's a duty to take reasonable care in adhering to your duty. 
a prohibition on making loans to the trustees, for example, or mixing trust funds. Now, again, these are ones that most modern trustees say the trustee is allowed to do. So they have some historical context and they have a context where a trustee may not give that power. But most modern trustees allow the trustee to mix the funds of one trust with other funds. Really, that surprises me yeah. because it would be a nightmare to account for when, when you start mixing funds. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I think the modern trustee has probably taken that view that we allow it to occur so as not to cause a breach by the trustee. But from a practical perspective, it is a nightmare for the accountants to try to work out well, whose money is which. Yeah. And is it maybe to allow different trusts to buy one property together, for example? No, I don't, I don't think it would be for that purpose because that would merely just be an, another power in the trustee to perhaps power to enter into partnership, power to invest in an asset. This is more about, I think, a scenario perhaps where an individual trustee doesn't want to open a bank account for the trust and therefore just puts all of the, the money from into their own bank account. So that's often what will happen. Accounts will say that drives them mad because they've got to try to differ, differentiate, but yes. certainly the power is generally there. So far we've spoken about the duties of trustees yep. and we've spoken about the rights of beneficiaries. Yep. Is it a one-way street where the trustee has all the duties and the beneficiaries has all the rights? You know, is there also something coming back the other so way in terms of that the, the trustee has some rights and the beneficiaries have some obligations? Yeah, so beneficiaries generally don't have any obligations, so they're just a merely a discretionary beneficiary. In some trust deeds over time, some that have got into trouble, beneficiaries will have perhaps an obligation to put more capital in to meet the debts of the trustee. Now, there was a case, and I can't remember the name, but that was one of the terms. Now, modern trustees have been changed to, to say, well, a beneficiary no longer has to do that. That would destroy all asset protection. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I think it was just one of those cases that it all lined up for them. Well, that's what the trustee says, so therefore you have to you have to meet that obligation. I but see, so the, the nature of the trust and the reason why trusts are so popular is because the beneficiary doesn't have obligations towards the trustee. That's right. Rarely will they, and certainly in discretionary trusts they won't. In most unit trusts or even hybrid unit trusts, they won't have any obligations to the trustee, obligations beyond paying their subscription money. So if they buy 10 units and they haven't paid the $10 for a dollar a unit, then they have to pay that at some point. Up beyond that obligation, there's no, there's generally no obligations on the beneficiaries, and that's the way it should be for asset protection. And this subscription, you only have for a unit trust. You don't have it for a discretionary yes, trust. Yes, that's right. So a discretionary trust is usually created by a set law, and usually it's it will be an independent party in, in most cases. The settler. Yep, and they will start the trust generally by settling the trust with $10 at the standard across the industry. And that starts the trust and the $10 is the trust property that creates the trustee beneficiaries and the trust property. Now, there are unit trusts that have set laws as well. 
but there are unit trusts that merely have a trustee and the unit holders. So there's different trusts out there to meet those different characteristics. If we apply some of these duties to trusts that will have default beneficiaries, interests of a default beneficiary are really a contingent interest. It's contingent on a number of things. Firstly, that the trust will every year distribute it or not distribute its income. So in every year, the trustee has a duty to distribute its income. In the case where there are default beneficiaries, if the trustee fails to do that distribution or fails to distribute all of the income, then the default beneficiaries will, by default, receive a distribution of income. So it's contingent upon the trustee failing to to do that. In terms of the capital rights of a default beneficiary, again, it's contingent upon a number of things. One, that the trust lasts to the vesting date and that prior to the vesting date, the trustee hasn't exercised its discretion to distribute capital of the fund to another beneficiary. So those rights are contingent upon a number of things. And the role of the default beneficiary is basically just to avoid that nobody is presently entitled and hence the trustee is assessed under Section 1999A. That's basically the aim to avoid that's right. because to then you run the risk that you're hit with top marginal rates. Yeah, that, that's right. In our experience, our trustees do not have a default beneficiary. In our experience, trustees always distribute their income by 30 June, rarely is the default clause really needed. And that's our experience. We take the view that asset protection is better than having those default provisions. So if if I were the default beneficiary of my trust and I were being sued for something, and for then, what, a door in. then there is a little door in to say, well, if I get distributed income and I go bankrupt the next day, well, that income is now the property of the trustee in bankruptcy. Whereas, yes, there's a, there's a tax disincentive to accumulating the income because you get taxed at the highest marginal rate. But our, you don't distribute correct, to, to someone else, that's right. But our view is, well, one, very rarely does a trustee not distribute its income, and two, the asset protection benefits of not having a default beneficiary outweigh that risk of being taxed at the highest marginal rate. But that is the reason why default beneficiaries are there, is to say, well, if the trustee doesn't distribute its income, these are the people who are getting it, to make sure that the trustee doesn't get taxed. So there's differing views on that. Default beneficiaries are the norm, but ours don't have them for that reason. But a default beneficiary does, in a way, have a proprietary interest in the trust, albeit it's contingent upon those contingencies we talked about. I see. So no other beneficiary has a proprietary interest in a discretionary trust. That's right. But the default beneficiary does, and hence the default beneficiary is dangerous for asset protection. Yes, that's the view we take. Now, how do you value that interest? Certainly, it probably holds a nominal value until the point where that interest becomes vested. So until the point where the trustee doesn't exercise a discretion at the vesting date and suddenly that beneficiary gets an asset or gets a right to an asset, well, until that time, it's a fairly nominal interest. But 
it certainly is an interest. So it's one of those things that, yeah, like I said, we consider the asset protection benefits of not having them outweigh the other benefits. So that's why I guess our trustees have fully discretionary beneficiaries is, is what we call them. And really that means all of the beneficiaries have a mere expectancy. That's the legal term. No proprietary right. No proprietary rights. It means that all of their other rights in the trust are very nominal. They don't really have any rights other than is the trustee adhering to the terms. They have no rights to call for any asset, call for any distribution of income. They merely have an, an ability to receive income if the trustee exercises that discretion. Welcome back. Normally in life, there is no such thing as a free lunch, although there is free CPE. I like to point it out that listening to this episode will give you free CPE. But also, as a beneficiary, there is, and that is, a beneficiary has no obligations, just rights. In the next episode, episode 90, Paul McEnross will talk about setting up a discretionary trust. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to Klaus for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.